Welcome to Let's Talk Micro. Hello everyone. Welcome to another episode of Let's Talk Micro. As always, I hope you had a great week. And you can always find Let's Talk Micro on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Pandora, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, GoodPods, wherever you listen to podcasts, you can find Let's Talk Micro. As far as social media, I am on Instagram, TikTok, and a YouTube channel as Let's Talk Micro, no apostrophe, on Twitter as Let's Talk Micro 1, and on LinkedIn as Luis Plaza. And any questions, any uh, podcast topic suggestions, or any feedback, you can always email me at letstalkmicro at outlook.com. So please go ahead and subscribe to the podcast, download episodes. If the app allows you to leave a review, please go ahead and do one. That's always good for the podcast. And definitely, you know, follow me on social media. I always like to post pictures of organisms and give updates as to when the next episode is coming up. If you haven't checked out the latest episode or the, the previous episode, better said, of Let's Talk Micro, please go ahead and do so. It was part two. It was two episodes. So two weeks ago, part one air, and then last week, part two. And it was about a hospital network going down. Dr. Christina Wujawoda from the Vermont, Vermont University Medical Center. She joined the podcast and talked about her story. So you're definitely, if you work in the lab, you're familiar with downtime. This one was very long. So it was it was definitely a horror story seeing, you know, how long they went, you know, how long their system was down and what they did, you know, what they came up with, how did, you know, how they manage around that. And definitely the take home message for this is definitely be prepared, have some sort of plan. As always, technology is wonderful, but sometimes, you know, if the system is down, you have to be prepared so you can continue with patient care. So today's episode is about parasites. You know, we typically focus a lot on bacteriology. So today is about parasites. And what better than to talk about parasites with a great guest. And her name is Dr. Bobby Pritt. And she is the director of the Parasitology Laboratory at Mayo Clinic. A great guest. You know, she has a blog, which I'm going to be putting on the show notes. And she talks about it on the episode. But definitely very knowledgeable, very experienced. She has been doing this for a long time. So definitely a great guest to talk about that subject. So Dr. Pritt joins the podcast and she talks about, she gives him an overview on, you know, what's in the oven parasite test, you know, what's the traditional method. She talks about molecular methods. She talks about digital parasitology, which they just recently implemented and more, more, more about that to follow. But that, you know, that system can actually screen for negatives. So... She also talks about uh, her blog, and she talks about an upcoming workshop that they're going to have in Mayo Clinic, and I will put the information on the show notes. But you know, overall, it was a great conversation. You know, she talks about whether we should be giving parasitology more attention. You know, she mentions the traditional parasitology testing. You know, with your microscope and how can that be? You know, it can be intensive. You need a, you need expertise. And sometimes, you know, it can lead to fatigue in some areas, you know, like here in the States that we don't, where we don't have that many parasites. So they get a lot of orders. And sometimes, you know, you spend all this time at the microscope and most of the tests are negative. So it was a great conversation with Dr. Pritt. I hope you enjoy it. So let's go ahead and listen to it. 
So here in Let's Talk Micro, we like to cover a variety of topics. You know, I typically focus a lot on, on the bacteriology portion of microbiology. So today we're switching it up a little and we are talking about parasites. So with me today, I have a guest, you know, it's very, she's very active in social media and microbiology. She has a blog, which we'll be talking about and an upcoming workshop. So with me today, I have Dr. Bobby Pritt, Dr. Pritt. Welcome to Let's Talk Micro. Well, thank you, Lewis. It's such a pleasure to be here. I really appreciate the opportunity. My pleasure. So I typically, you know, with the guests, I always, you know, we start with a quick introduction where they, they tell the audience a little bit about yourself. So let's go ahead and start with that, please. Yeah, well, uh, I'm Bobby Pritt, and I am the director of the Clinical Parasitology Laboratory at Mayo Clinic. I'm a pathologist by training, and that's a physician who specializes in the laboratory diagnosis of diseases. And I'll just mention that pathology and laboratory medicine is really the backbone of medical practice. If you think about it, 70% of the information uh, in the medical record comes from pathology and laboratory medicine. So that was my specialty. I then subspecialized in microbiology and then received additional training in parasitology. I went and received a master's degree at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine in London, England, and also a diploma in tropical medicine. So I'm very fortunate now to be the laboratory director of a high volume parasitology laboratory at Mayo Clinic. We have specimens that come in from all across the United States and also other parts of the world. So we see a lot of parasites in my laboratory and I have a, a great team of really highly specialized and experienced technologists. Yeah. And wow, you know, studying abroad, that must have been quite an experience. And definitely, you know, I've, I've been to London, I've been fortunate enough to be a few times, you know, a great city. And we do have members of the audience that are in, in London. So hello to everyone. Um, and definitely, you know, as medical lab scientists, we're definitely familiar with the Mayo Clinic. Some point in time, you know, it's right. It's like a bit reference lab for most laboratories, you know, some tests or another, we end up sending to Mayo. So those of you that are listening are definitely familiar with it. So let's go ahead and start with, you know, so with parasitology, as MLSs, you know, we study some when we're going through the courses. And then as if we end up in micro, sometimes some labs, you know, they don't do a lot, they maybe send it out, you know, maybe the huge places tend to do parasitology. So let's go ahead and start with the with the basics. So what are the typical specimens, you know, and tests that are performed in the clinical parasitology laboratory? Yeah, sure. Uh, to this day, morphologic examination of specimens by good old-fashioned light microscopy is still the gold standard for detecting many parasites. And the most common specimen types that we receive in the laboratory are stool and blood, but we get urine and skin scrapings, uh, perianal swabs for pinworm. We also get a whole variety of arthropods like ticks and fleas and lice to identify. So microscopy and morphology are very important. Yes, definitely. Um, so using stool as an example, Lizette, can you explain how a specimen is typically processed and examined for parasites? Yeah, stool is a great example. It's probably one of our highest volume specimens. We um, traditionally used to use fresh stool, and that's because we were looking for parasites that moved. And each parasite has its own specific pattern of movement. Uh, for example, Giardia is described as having a falling leaf motility. But there's limitations to that, uh, mostly in our 
uh, resource-rich, commercialized, and developed uh, centers, the patient may deliver a specimen, and then it, it could take several hours to get to the laboratory. Um, so unless you're in a real point-of-care setting where you get the specimen immediately afterwards, you're not going to get a really fresh specimen. And because of that, the parasites die, then they start to break down and degenerate, and it makes it actually harder to identify them. So most places in the United States, in North America, and also Europe have moved to accepting stool specimens in a, a preservative. And there are a number of classic preservatives and new commercially available per preservatives. We used to use formalin a lot, but now we're going towards the more eco-friendly types of preservatives, more ethanol-based. And that really nicely preserves the specimen. It comes to us, and then we do two very important types of exams on that specimen. One, we do a permanent stained preparation. That's great, it gets cover-slipped, the slide can be kept indefinitely. The other type of exam we do is called a wet mount preparation of a concentrated stool specimen. And the concentrated stool specimen, as the name implies, concentrates the parasites into the part of the specimen that you're looking at, therefore increases your chances of finding parasites. Now, the two are really complementary. Uh, the permanent stain is primarily looking for protozoan parasites. The stain nicely highlights a lot of their morphologic features. Um, you could also do other special stains like um, a modified acid fast for cryptosporidium, cyclospora, for example. Um, but then that uh, correlates well with the wet mount preparation that also looks for protozoan parasites. And you see some different morphologic features on the wet mount. But then the wet mount is also used for detecting helmet eggs and helmet larvae. So really, um, if you're accredited through the College of American Pathologists, you are required to do both. It's generally considered best practice to do both, even if you're not required to do so. Now, uh, Lewis, forgive me, I'm going to talk a little bit about the pros and cons of stool parasite exam, because as you're probably hearing and, and our listeners are, are thinking about this, it obviously requires a, a microscope. So you need a well-maintained calibrated microscope, a reliable power supply, but also um, the ovun parasite exam, what we typically call the stool microscopy exam is subjective it's highly manual. It requires highly skilled and trained technologists. It can take months to get a technologist up to the level where they can detect the broad uh, array of parasites found in a specimen. And if you are in an area that has very uh, good levels of sanitation, you don't have soil transmitted helmets, you have treated uh, sewage and uh, good clean water supply, Parasites are pretty uncommon. And the ovum parasite exam, therefore, is often ordered on people that don't have a lot of risk of having parasites. So what does that mean? That means that most of the specimens we look at are negative. And unfortunately, the ovum parasite exam is overordered a lot as well. So we get a lot of specimens <clears throat> and 95% of them are negative. So think about sitting at a microscope all day long, screening out specimens, and 95% of them are going to be negative. That's going to lead to ergonomic challenges, fatigue, uh, low job satisfaction, because you're not seeing a lot of positives, and you're not really working to the top of your license and using your skills to identify what's there. So that's where we start thinking about other tools to help our technologists to um 
really focus on where their skills are most needed. And um, there's also other tests that can be performed that give you perhaps a little bit more increased sensitivity in detecting parasites. Yeah, you know, and, and I like how you mentioned that because it's something that we have experienced at our facility and, you know, we started seeing this huge increases of, of ONP test order. And so, yeah, it was, it was a lot. And then eventually they had to reformulate, like when the physicians were ordering them. And one of the questions was like travel history and the other something. So if they didn't answer that question, they were unable to order that test and that reduced the number a lot. But yeah. It's definitely it can be frustrating as a as a tech. Yeah, you like you you see all these cool things, you know, when you're going through the program and then you graduate. Here I am, and then I'm just not seeing really anything. So that's yeah, that's one of the things which is a little bit different when you sit on like a bacteriology bench where you're seeing all these organisms and it can be very varied and very fun. So I can see how the the frustration can sit in. And um, so you mentioned say so other tests. So, you know, molecular definitely keeps making a lot of advances in this field. So what type of molecular testing is currently being done and how does it complement the traditional testing? Yeah, uh, molecular is becoming increasingly important, as are antigen tests. And I didn't mention those, but there are antigen tests for the more common causes of diarrhea and caused by parasites, and those are preferred over doing the OVA and parasite exam. Molecular really takes it up a notch. Now, um, for the past couple decades, we've had these multiplex molecular platforms for syndromic testing. We'll just take diarrhea as an example. There are numerous different platforms that are multiplex. They'll detect multiple different pathogens that can potentially cause diarrhea, and that includes bacteria, viruses, and parasites. This is a real win, I think, for our physicians and our patients, because if someone presents with watery diarrhea or bloody diarrhea, the differential for what could be causing that is pretty broad. And the physician might have to order 10 different tests to target all of the common things that could be causing that patient's symptoms. And now it's just a single test. Now you still have to use good test stewardship. And um, we need to, in the laboratory, help our ordering providers pick the right test. Um, there are a lot of times where you wouldn't need to do testing at all. If someone's had diarrhea for a couple of days, they're probably gonna get better on their own. And you certainly don't wanna perform an expensive molecular test to detect a, a cause of diarrhea that's due to a virus and the patient will get better the next day. But for certain patients that are immunocompromised or at risk of serious disease, and for the patients that have been symptomatic for more than seven days, they should be tested and may require specific treatment. So the new syndromic panels are very helpful. Um, the diarrheal gastrointestinal pathogens panels do have parasites on them, so that's helpful. Um, and then there are other syndromic panels. Most of them don't cover parasites, but in the future, they could. Other molecular tests that I would say have really revolutionized uh, diagnostic parasitology would be tests for Trichomonas vaginalis. That's actually part of a, a multiplex panel where you can test for chlamydia, uh, gonorrhea, and trichomoniasis, as well as other things. That's much more sensitive than doing the old-fashioned wet prep uh, at the at the bedside where it was about 50% sensitive, and so half of your patients you were missing. 
Another pathogen that we use molecular routinely for would be Toxoplasma gondii. Toxoplasmosis is the disease that is, that's caused. Usually diagnosis is by serology, but there are certain settings where molecular would be the test of choice. So I think we're going to see more molecular tests as they become commercially available and in the U.S. as they become FDA approved or cleared or in Europe CE marked. Um, they're going to be easier for laboratories to bring in and start using. But it's still important to maintain those morphologic skills. And sometimes that's still the fastest way to make a diagnosis is to put the specimen under the microscope. So we don't want to lose our conventional diagnostic parasitology skills either. Yes, definitely. I think sometimes, you know, with things like with the trichomonas that we um, we end up, sometimes the challenge is getting the specimen, you know, in a quick, you know, in a timely manner to the lab. So we can just put it there and observe the motility. But yeah, definitely a lot of those manufacturers, we're, we're seeing a lot of increase and in now smaller labs are able to bring some sort of parasite testing when it comes because they have those platforms they can run. Sometimes, you know, they can use them for blood cultures. And then if they have, you know, they run GI panels on them and viral panels. So definitely uh, you can do a, a variety of tests. So as far as, you know, and I have worked with this and we see that instruments with digital images, you know, they're definitely making their way. Your analysis being a big one of them, where you can see, you know, your cells, your cast. Uh, we see on hematology also, where you see, you know, your white blood cells, you see your inclusions. So is there a role for this in parasitology? And what about maybe artificial intelligence? Yeah, well, you know, I love this question, Lewis, because it really goes right into what I talked about, still having the need for morphologic skills. Um, but then it also goes to my previous comment of how do we help our technologists looking at specimens to really hone in on what's important, maybe screen out those 95% negatives and go to the 5% that are parasites, find the parasites and then identify them. And uh, anything that can be digitalized can be analyzed by an AI algorithm. And so we're seeing digital parasitology, digital pathology, and artificial intelligence really revolutionized the field of laboratory medicine and pathology, and parasitology is no different. And stool parasitology is a great place to start. Blood would also be a good place to start looking for, say, malaria or Babesia species um, in peripheral blood smears. So we have actually implemented stool digital parasitology starting yesterday. Um, so this is hot off the presses, <clears throat> very new and exciting for us. Uh, we are using a system that will scan our permanently stained slides for protozoa. And very quickly, we can screen out negatives. Uh, the, the scanned image is analyzed by an algorithm that allows us to detect parasites and then also allows us to very quickly rule out negative specimens. So this really, um, it does two things. It allows us to improve our technologist job satisfaction. They don't have to spend all of their time reading negative slides, but it also increases the sensitivity of detecting the cases where their attention is really needed in um, determining what parasite is present and then making that final diagnosis. So we're calling this AI-assisted morphologic review. It's still the technologist who makes the final call, and that's very important. Yes, it definitely is. And even yeah, with the with the other instruments, we do end up, you, you get the images, but you have a person there analyzing them and making sure that 
yeah, this looks like it. This doesn't look like it. So I'll take it out. I'm not reporting this and that. So yes, definitely. So, you know, in microbiology, you, know, you mentioned, you talked about that definitely training in parasitology, you know, it can be time consuming. I'm seeing that sometimes you don't, you don't have enough trained people in labs. And I mentioned that sometimes, you know, it is done in big labs, smaller labs, they send them out. So there's definitely a lot of focus on training, you know, bacteriologists. And now with shows, you know, like The Last of Us, you know, fungi there, people are saying we should be giving them more attention. Um, so are we giving parasites enough focus? And if not, should we? Um, I mentioned not all the labs test for them. So should they be doing more testing? Well, of course, I'm biased. So I think that parasites are quite important, although you have to keep uh, in mind what is actually impacting our patients. And so things like antimicrobial susceptibility testing is quite important, obviously. Um, it depends on what part of the world you live in and what parasites are present. But there are a few parasites that I think all labs need to have an ability to test for. Uh, so parasitic infection, malaria, that is something that every lab has to have some mechanism for performing a test very quickly. So on a stat basis, and whether that's performing a rapid antigen test and then sending it for confirmation at a local laboratory that can provide that higher level of read, um, that's one option. Uh, or it could be doing the conventional gold standard thick and thin blood films. As you mentioned, Lewis, a lot of labs are not doing parasitology testing anymore. Perhaps they're just doing antigen testing um, and sending to another lab, maybe doing PCR. But there are some things like being able to detect malaria that I would consider to be a core competency. Now, should every lab try to do everything though? Probably not because parasites can be rare in certain settings trying to maintain competency and keep people trained would be a very hard challenge. And it would probably have some risk to it where people would just not be competent, but they'd be trying to do something that's outside of their comfort area. So you have to weigh what's actually feasible with what's needed for patient care. And then I also want to mention that there are some really good resources out there. For example, the CDC DPDX group offers a free diagnostic telepathology service. So you could always turn to your experts when you are trying to make a diagnosis of something you're not familiar with. But I think labs, it's important to know their limitations and then what, if there are limitations, what do they still need to do for patient care, such as being able to look at a CSF for amoebic infection to roll out free living amoeba, um, like Nagleria thalari infection, or to be able to look at a blood smear or perform some type of test for malaria. Yes, definitely. And, you know, the thing with, with malaria, since it's in, in blood, a lot of people in the hematology area, they're definitely well trained for it as well. So when you're doing your, your slides. Um, so when I open, I mentioned that, you know, you have a blog and we were talk, talking a little bit about this. You know, it was, it's interesting that I've been hearing some of my coworkers they're like, oh, yeah, you know, I follow this person. They have this blog, you know, they post some cool cases. And then all of a sudden, when I saw, I look at the blog and I saw that it was you. So it was kind of cool that I was planning on doing an episode. And here we are. So, yeah. So can you tell the audience a little bit about your blog? Yeah, sure. So my blog is called Creepy, Dreadful, Wonderful Parasites. 
and it's at parasitewonders.blogspot.com. I also have a sister site, which is my website that has my image archive and it has some flashcards and some other educational resources. And if you end up at my website, there's a link to my blog. If you go to my blog, there's a link to my website. So the two of them, I consider them to be very closely linked. But my blog is a case uh, blog, case-based. Every week I post a new case. And then later that week, I post the answer to the case. I try to give people at least a few days to kind of consider what they think is present. Um, you can write in on the blog. I also post the cases on Twitter. My handle is Parasite Gal. <laughs> and and, uh, and then I also post them on a Facebook professional parasite page and uh, LinkedIn. So a few different ways that people can follow. Um, I've been doing this since 2007. When I went to London and got my master's in parasitology, I started the blog that year and it just kind of grew slowly in popularity. And now I'm at the point where I, I have a, I'm really blessed to have a whole community of followers around the world. So I feel like I have to keep it up now. <laughs> and also I, I learn a lot from the cases and I learn a lot from my followers. And I love seeing the comments come in when people guess what it is, or sometimes people will write poems about what they think it is or tell stories from their own experience. So it's really been a, a an enriching experience for me. Well, since 2007, like even before the whole smartphones and you started doing that, I had a flip phone at the time and uh, and I had just gotten a Facebook account that year as well. So it was still very new. And actually I had to write uh, my initial blog posts in HTML code. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Now, thankfully, everything is, you know, what you see is what you get. WYSIWYG, as they call it, you don't have to write code. Um, but uh, it was a little more challenging initially. But it's still, I should say, you know, freely available. I, I never commercialize it. I don't make any money whatsoever. It's just all for education and fun. Yeah, right. Definitely. It's very, very, very rewarding um, when we do this, right, to share information and educate. You know, it's just the same thing here. Like, I don't make anything from this. I just, I love doing it. And the people I meet and the information I share, that's just very rewarding. So, by, you know, do you have any cases? And maybe we can do a couple. Yeah, sure. Well, um, let's start with a, a case that I think is going to be relevant to many people in our audience um, because it's something that can be found anywhere in the world. And that is the free living amoebae. Um, so amoeba, um, amoebae that live in um, water, soil, in our environment. Usually they're perfectly happy, living freely, feeding on bacteria in the environment. But every so once in a every once in a while, they can infect us and sometimes cause really severe complications and, and even death. So I had a patient with acanthamoebic keratitis. That's one of the free living amoebae. Um, and acanthamoebic keratitis, as the name implies, it's an infection of the eye, specifically the cornea, the outside part of the eye. And we mostly today see this in people who wear contact lenses. So I wear contact lenses. I'm sure many people in our audience wear contact lenses. This is one of the many reasons why you need to be very careful and keep your lenses clean and follow all of the instructions given to you by your optometrist. Now, the patient I had seen had gone swimming in a lake with his contact lenses in and didn't throw them out afterwards as is recommended. You should discard them if you get them contaminated. He continued to wear them. And it was 
after about two weeks, his vision was slowly getting worse. It started getting hazy and his eyes started to hurt. So at that point with the history, his physician said, stop wearing those contacts, um, stop wearing contacts at all for a period of time and, and did some various tests, corneal scrapings and sent the contact lenses to us for analysis. And we were doing a culture at the time for free living amoebae. And so we put the contact lenses and the corneal scrapings on a type of auger that was overlain with E. coli as a food source that the amoeba just loved. They just gobble it right up. And very quickly, we had an amoebic colony that was growing on the auger with the E. coli there. And that's Escherichia coli, not uh, Entamoeba coli. Um, so more in the bacteria area, Lewis, for you. Um, and sure enough, it was a canthamoeba. We confirmed it with PCR. This is a, a very difficult infection to treat. It can continue and sometimes people need to actually have corneal transplants, but luckily he was treated right away. He followed his treatment regimen, both of his eyes cleared up and he was cured of his infection. But I thought that would be a good case to mention because a lot of people wear contact lenses. Um, the CDC did a study to see what the risk factors were for contact lens use, where you get um, a canthamoebic infection. And it's the, the, the greatest risk factors are rinsing your lenses in um, under the tap, tap water. Uh, a canthamoeba can be found in tap water. Some of them are resistant to chlorine. So don't do that. Only use the you know commercially available sterile contact lens solution. And then the other major risk factor was reusing the fluid in your contact lens cases and just sticking the contact lens back in the same old fluid and maybe topping it up with more fluid, but kind of reusing the whole fluid once you've stuck in your fingers in it. So um, don't do that either use new contact lens fluid, change your cases out regularly. And if you're going to go swimming, make sure if you're wearing your contact lenses, you throw them out immediately afterwards. Don't keep them on your eye. It's just inoculating the organism right against your cornea. Um, yeah, you know, with contact lenses, yeah, I tried them years ago and I had some bad experiences. So for right now, I'm kind of you know, giving up on them for now. Uh, but yeah. I could never figure how to put them right on my eyes. And sometimes I have some instances, this is years ago, but with the solution, yeah, I, I put it in my eyes sometimes and they will burn. And so I stuck to the glasses for now. Um, yeah. Uh, do you have another case by any chance or? Yeah, I do. Um, so I have another case that I thought um, is a little bit more focal to certain parts of the world. And it was a case of a child that had worms in her intestine. Um, and that's actually not uncommon in some parts of the world. There's a, a neglected tropical disease that's a category called soil transmitted helmets. Helmets that you get by eating food or water that's been contaminated with soil and the soil is dirty. It has uh, human feces in it and parasite eggs. And unfortunately, there are parts of the world where people don't have access to clean water supply and uncontaminated food. And so it's pretty common to have intestinal worms, intestinal helmets. Well, this little girl was living in Cameroon and I was involved in her care peripherally uh, through virtual consultation. But um, 
she had a distended abdomen. Her whole belly was just swollen up. And that's because her intestine was full of a really large worm that many of you probably have heard of called Ascaris. So Ascaris lumbricoides is the largest roundworm to infect humans. It's, you know, up to 35 centimeters in length, the female, and uh, about the diameter of a a pen or a pencil, um, maybe slightly smaller than that. But that's a pretty big worm. Even just one of those worms in the wrong place, like in your appendix or the biliary tree could spell, you know, disaster. But this little girl had hundreds of these in her intestine. And she had the dreaded complication of ascaris infection, which was small bowel obstruction. And that's a medical emergency that can be life-threatening. So they took her emergency, emergently into surgery and they removed the section of bowel that was just full of worms. They put it into a container. Um, it just filled the container. So it was basically like a, a, a giant big salad bowl sized bowl full of worms, overfilling with worms. Um, but the procedure was a success and she was she's now doing well and happy. But this, I think, goes to show how important parasites are in some parts of the world. And you have a neglected tropical disease like soil transmitted helminth infection, including ascariasis, infection with ascaris worms. And you can just see how serious this is for large portions of our population. So for this reason, in many parts of the world, they will actually go out and preemptively give people deworming medication uh, once or twice a year. Often this will happen in, uh, you do it for children to prevent this type of terrible infection. And often it happens at the school level. So children will go to school, they'll all get their deworming medication. It's very safe. There are hardly ever any complications. And you just do that once or twice a year. Now, why don't they just get rid of all the parasites? That's a much harder problem. If you're in an area that you don't have access to clean water and your water is contaminated, um, we all want to improve water supply. That's a big initiative worldwide. But until then, we need to prevent infections from getting as far along as this as it did for this little girl. So just by going in and giving medication twice a year, you are able not to prevent infection. It's still going to happen in between, but you prevent it from getting to the point where it's life-threatening. So thankfully, there are a lot of people interested in these types of programs, a lot of wonderful volunteer work, work done by the World Health Organization and other non-governmental organizations that um, have really started uh, improving access to clean water and also decreasing worm burdens in a lot of people. Yeah, that's great. You know, sometimes, you know, we right, we get like into our little bubble and then we even, we kind of forget that, yeah. So many other things going in other parts of the world, and maybe we don't see parasites, you know, here as much. But definitely, they're very active in other areas, and like you mentioned, with the clean water, uh, definitely. So, one thing that I saw, and I mentioned at the beginning, so I saw that you have an up, there's an upcoming workshop, right? Can you talk? Can you tell the audience about that? Yeah, there is. So this goes back to uh, the statement I made earlier about how it's still important to keep your morphologic skills up because you might get a patient who is an, an immigrant or international adoptee and you want to be able to recognize an ascaris if it comes to your laboratory. Um, or you could send it out, but sometimes the specimen comes right to your lab, you have the opportunity to make that diagnosis. So how do we improve our morphologic skills? One of the ways that we could do this is through 
national educational sessions. And so we are very excited that um, we'll be hosting our first annual parasitology workshop at Mayo Clinic. It's on August 11th through 12th. It's one and a half days. Um, we're charging only what we need to cover the costs. We want this to be as affordable as we could make it. So we're not doing this as a profit just to basically cover the cost of renting the space and the microscopes and getting all the material and people here. Um, it's going to be hands-on, interactive. We'll have key lectures. We'll talk about algorithms and how we can be good stewards of test uh, laboratory tests how we can educate our colleagues who are ordering those tests. And um, it's also going to include a, a tour of my parasitology laboratory. And we're going to provide um, tours of what we're doing with digital parasitology as well. So it's staffed by me and my lab experts. I have several technologists who are outstanding, who are parasitology experts. And then we also have a special guest lecturer, Blaine Matheson. He's also a laboratory technologist who's really risen to the ranks nationally in parasitology. He used to work at the CDC and the DPDX group. Now he works at ARUP as a, a special uh, developer, test developer, and research scientist. So outstanding career and um, I think that people would really enjoy getting to meet him. So if anyone wants to come and join us, we'd love to have you. Uh, it's open right now to sign up and there's still plenty of spots. So this, we just opened it um, a few days ago or a few weeks ago, maybe now. So this would be a great time. And yeah. And Lewis, I think you're going to be there. So I'm really looking forward to meeting you in person. Yes, yes, definitely. Yes, for the audience. Yeah, I, I did sign up for it. The process was you know, really easy. And I'll put the link on the show notes. Um, so people can have access to it when they're checking out the episode. But yeah, it's a, I thought it would be a great opportunity yeah, to definitely, you know, get more, like get that hands-on training experience. And, you know, it's always good to retrain and get familiar with, you know, all, all this, you know, definitely with parasites, you know, it's definitely great as an educator. Uh, it's good to stay current. And so I'm really looking forward to it. And like I said, yeah, like you mentioned, you know, meeting you in person and, I never met um, Blaine. I've seen him speak on some conferences, but definitely in the parasite world, his name is well known. And even on the on the College of American Pathology surveys, when we get those, a lot of the images they say provided by Blaine Matheson. So he's definitely famous. So uh, looking forward to meeting him as well. You know, I'll do the same thing, Lewis. I'll go to other people's workshops because I'm always. Well, we're all lifelong learners, right? We always want to learn and make ourselves better. And even though I teach a lot, I'm sure there's things I could be doing, you know, more innovatively and, and better. So I love going to other people's workshops just to see how they're organizing it and what I can take away and make my own practice better. Indeed. So is there anything else you want to add? You know, I'll just add, um, we'll finish off by saying that parasitology is really a fascinating field of diagnostic microbiology, diagnostic laboratory medicine. Um, and parasitology is very interesting in that it's different than bacteriology, virology. You need to approach it as if it was a zoology. Instead of studying lions, tigers, and bears, we're studying protozoa, helmets, and arthropods. But they're very complex organisms. They have life cycles that can be very complex, different means of transmission. So for the biologist in me, I've always really enjoyed parasitology because it is like a zoology. Each organism has its own little 
habitat and environment and ecology associated with it. And then there are just beautiful morphologic features associated with many of them. So it's really a pleasure to get to see them. And then also very rewarding for me knowing that I can help a patient and, and hope that that patient, because of my diagnosis, gets cured of their terrible infection. So I would encourage anyone who's interested to learn more about parasitology. Um, and there's a lot of places where you can learn more. There's my blog, as we mentioned. The CDC also has some wonderful resources and they do a monthly case and all of this is free. So lots of resources out there if you wanna learn more. Yes, you know, definitely. And I'll also put the link to your blog and on the show notes. And you know, you mentioned the CDC, definitely they have some great images. So those of you that are, you know, educators and are teaching and are, you know, working on getting some presentations and they have some great images that you can, you know, you can use and, and to show the students so they can have that visual. So it's definitely a, a great resource. Well, you know, uh, Dr. Pretty, you know, it's, this has been great. I definitely, I love your passion. You know, you're very passionate about your parasites and that's always it's always great seeing that how right you use that knowledge and you use your education and you get that feeling of helping your patients. You know, after all, you know, we as as you know laboratorians, you know, we do this to help the patients. So this, you know, it's great. And you know, it's definitely great, you know, meeting meeting you and and talking to you. It has been very informative. Um, so thank you for taking the time to come into Let's Talk Micro. Thank you again for the invitation. My pleasure. And that, my dear audience, it's the end of this episode. I hope you enjoyed listening to Dr. Pritt. As always, I enjoy sharing this information with you. Good information about parasitology. Definitely sign up for the workshop. I'm actually going to be there. So maybe I'll meet you, you know, looking forward to it. So definitely, you know, ASM Microbe 2023 is approaching fast. If you're going to be there, definitely. You know, I look forward to meeting you. If you see me, if you recognize me, you know, stop me and, you know, say hi. Um, definitely looking forward to it. I've been looking forward to micro for a long time and I'm so excited. So continue bringing that passion to what you do. It's so important. We do such great work. As always, stay motivated, stay safe, and of course, Continue talking micro. Until the next time. Bye.